Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. 199 episodes and not a reboot in sight. It's episode 199 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Saying that out loud is kind of crazy. We're at 199 episodes now. Next week, 200 episodes, and it's been so much fun over the years just getting to, to meet you guys and chat about nerd stuff. And just being able to do this week by week is so much fun for me. Hopefully, it's been just as much fun for you. And I mean, if this is your first episode, I mean, it's a good time to join in at 199, right? The big 200th episode is next week. Got some great stuff for you. Make sure you follow us on social media, facebook.com slash down and nerdy and at down and nerdy 757 on Twitter. Going to be making some guest announcements and other stuff that's going to be going up on the 200th episode throughout the week but i mean it's not like i'm just gonna throw this week away just because it's 199 and go ah who cares about this no no we have the cast of gotham by gaslight that i'm going to be talking to this week of course the big dc and warner brothers animated movie is going to be coming out so i'll tell you all about that some great nerd news i mean valiant was sold this week going to talk about the ant-man and the wasp trailer that came out and so much more to get to and hey let's review some comics it's what we're reading next on the down and nerdy podcast this is Benjamin Percy, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Pull out the long box, grab the tablet or the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and going to be doing something from Vertigo this week. I haven't done any Vertigo comics in a while. So it's Motherland's number one, written by Cy Spurrier, Rachel Stott on the art, Philippe Sobriero on the colors, and Simon Bolin on the letters. Great cover by Eric Cante as well. Now, basically, this is a universe where the multiverse itself is a well-known thing, and people can actually travel from multiverse to multiverse that's kind of been introduced. And aliens don't really exist. It's just other strings of humans. The, the universes are actually called strings. So it's just kind of there's alt-humans and things like that. And the book actually follows a hunter named Tabitha who kind of tracks wanted individuals through the strings. Now, I mean, there is a whole, you know, screwed up family angle that's kind of played in this book. Something happens with a family member of hers when she was younger. I won't spoil that for you. Try to keep these reviews spoiler free. And we, the book kind of jumps between 30 years in the past and the present. And there's something going on with Tabitha and her mother. And her mother is kind of well-known. That's as much as I will say on that. It's kind of interesting exactly her mother's story from 30 years ago is actually kind of interesting and who she was, the mother, is actually very, very interesting. And then you fast forward 30 years later and see where she is then. Now, in this book, humans aren't exactly seen as the top of the food chain, actually kind of looked down upon, especially in the work that Tabitha does in hunting down these individuals. It, it just feels like humans are, are the lesser of the beings, which is, I mean, it's certainly nothing new in the realm of science fiction or anything like that. It's not It's not like humans are always at the top of the food chain or anything. But they just. this just feels different. As a matter of fact, the book in general just kind of felt all over the place for me. I mean, I mean it clearly has a pretty linear, linear direction, but at the same time, it's not even the time jumps for me. It just felt like 
this book didn't really know where it wanted to go and which angle that it really wanted to play. And it's not like there weren't any good angles to play. There were actually a couple of good ones. And it's almost like this book was over the top at times just for the sake of being over the top. Um, if, if you read it, you'll understand what I'm saying, or if you've already read it. It just felt like it was trying so hard to get your attention that it kind of distracted me from the actual story, which in itself, in, at least in this first issue, just kind of felt a little bit predictable to me. And not a whole lot that makes me want to root for any of the characters, especially the main characters. I mean, Tabitha's fine, and you know, it's kind of like a down-in-your-luck thing where she's trying to live up to a certain expectation, and maybe she feels like she isn't, or the world feels that way, or she feels like the world feels that way, and there's self-esteem issues there. And her character, it's not that she's not interesting, it's just that there's nothing that you get in this first issue that makes you go, man, I wish things were better for her. Man, I, you know, I hope things turn around. And it's not even a cold and heartless thing, trust me, it's just you got to be able to root for your main character, right? And it's like, well, you know, if she makes it, that'd be nice. But I'm not hardcore rooting for her. Like when I, if you go to see to our website, downandnerdypodcast.com, when I reviewed The Silencer from, from DC Comics, that was a, a new character. And that's a character that, you know, jumps right out at you, is, is kind of a relatable character in a way. But, but you know, I liked her immediately and I was rooting for her. And when, and when things went south for her, you know, and, you know, I actually cared. And in this case, it's not that I care, it's just you're not giving me a reason to want to root for this character. The art it's, the art in the book is actually the best part of the book. I think that Rachel Stott does a really, really good job with the art in this book. And there's, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, alien-type creatures. I know they said there's, there's no aliens, but all humans, I guess we'll call them. And when you see the different multiverses, the art is good. But, I mean, beyond that, there's real... And the art was certainly not knocked down great to make me go, man, the story was kind of all over the place, but the art was so good that I'm going to stick with this. It's just something about, I don't know, maybe I'm just not a Cy Spurrier fan. I know I've reviewed books of his in the past, and I just I just have not really been able to catch on. And this, unfortunately, is another drop for me. I think it's an interesting concept, and, and maybe it can get better in the second issue, but I don't just see it making a huge jump enough to make a difference for me to want to stick around. In case you didn't know, there is a Stretch Armstrong in the Flex Fighters series that's on Netflix right now, an animated series. And guess what? There's also comics as well. IDW Publishing bringing Stretch Armstrong in the Flex Fighters number one this week from Kevin Burke and Chris Doc Wyatt doing the writing. Nikos Kautzis doing the art. Mike Torres on the colors. Krista Meisner doing the letters. And the cover artist. Wow, this is going to be a tough one for me. Aluri Amancio on the cover. If I butchered anybody's name, that's kind of my thing on the show. If you haven't listened to the show before, I apologize in advance. Now, this is based on the Netflix animated show, and it follows Jake Armstrong, Nathan Park, and Ricardo Perez, a group of high school friends, as they protect Charter City, which is sponsored, and their their group is sponsored by Rook Unlimited, which is a big tech company. And the only thing that bothers me in this book that I'm going to get out of the way right away is the kind of overbearing parent on the high school student trope that we see a lot in shows like this and in books like this, but it's just a little thing. I'm not saying that I don't like this book. Don't get that impression at all. I just wanted to get that out of the way right away. I, I, I don't feel, I feel like that was needed in the story. Maybe it'll make more sense 
as it goes on. Of course, I, I I'm going into this having not seen the animated series either, so don't don't pound me if they explained it in the animated series and I don't know yet. I'm gonna get there. Trust me. And again, before I move on to the story, this the art in this book is so good, guys. I mean, it's it's really really good. Nikos Kautzas does a really really good job with the art. It doesn't match perfectly with the animated series, and and that's tough to do in a comic, but it is so darn close that every page I flipped, I'm like, wow, I am enjoying, really enjoying reading this book. Now, as far as the story goes, love the team dynamic between, between the teenagers. It's so good. And they just really feel like a team. And there wasn't a whole lot of backstory and you just jump right in and it just felt right for this book. I, I didn't get bogged down in every little detail about, the, about these characters. You just showed me how great the dynamic was. And I loved it from the very, very beginning. And I mean, when you start out fighting a, a giant monster in the middle of the city, I mean, you really can't go wrong there. But, you know, it's a comic. So you're going to find out that there's more to it than that a little bit later on in the issue. There's also a federal element in there, government agency element, that I feel like is going to matter more as the series goes on. Again, haven't seen the animated series. I'm sure they go in more into that. And I'm sure the comic will make more sense once I watch the animated series as well. But I'll tell you what, I didn't really need the animated series to enjoy this book because I really did. You've created a few really good characters here in the team dynamic, you've got their boss from Rook Unlimited. Then you've got the guy that trains them who's tough on them, which the, all the characters play their roles so well. And I'm only one issue into this book, and it felt so much like a first-generation Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated series-style book. When Now, we're not talking about four brothers here, and we're not talking about a completely—the dynamic was not as good as Turtles. But I will say it felt like that. I got the Turtles vibe when I was reading this book because we're talking about teenagers here. And and maybe that's what, what it reminded me of. But you captured that so well that it made me feel like that's what I was reading in a certain way. But the story is completely different. So not only did you bring something new to the table, you kind of you know triggered some fond memories for me. And maybe that's one of the reasons that this is a pull for me. As a matter of fact... Usually it's the other way around. You're watching a series, you find out there's a comic, and you go read the comic, right? Well, to me, this was exactly the opposite. After I got done reading this book, I thought, you know what? I've got to go watch this animated series, put it on my Netflix queue because I forgot all about it. Of course, it doesn't hurt that Scott Menville from Teen Titans Go is in there as well. Love that dude, so definitely going to watch it for that as well. But this book made me want to go to the animated series and I'm sure that uh, Netflix is probably pretty happy with IDW about that. And I don't think I'm going to be the only one. Read this book. Let me know what you think because I was really, really impressed with something that I did not expect to be this impressed with. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, This Week in Geektainment, find out what we're reviewing on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Patrick Fischler from Happy on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Feeling pretty good about this week in Geek Tame. We're going to be talking about the season one finale of Happy on Sci-Fi. Before I even get to the finale, I want to say a big congratulations to everyone at Sci-Fi and Grant Morrison. And everyone involved, Christopher Maloney, with Happy getting their season two renewal. Well, well deserved. And I think that uh, by me saying that, I think you'll understand what my rating is going to be 
at the end of this whole thing, but let's talk about it. So we're going to be spoiler-filled from here on out, so if you haven't seen the finale of Happy yet, definitely going to want to fast-forward a little bit ahead in the show. So let's pick up kind of where we left off with the two main things that happened in the last episode. Mary finally gets her hands on Mr. Blue after everything that happened with her mother and what she's going to do with him. And the other thing is Nick finally catches up with the truck, with the kids in it, but the kids have been, everybody's been moved, and Haley's the only one that's still missing. That's what we've kind of find out when the finale kicks off, is that the other kids are safe, but Haley is the only one that has been taken by very bad Santa. So we kind of figure out where she is, and, and Happy finds out where she is by a very interesting method, by tickle-torturing another imaginary friend. And that's one of the things we find out, actually, about Very Bad Santa is that he too had an imaginary friend, that that puppet that he talked to. You saw that in a couple of episodes. Well, that was his imaginary friend, and the imaginary friend ended up abandoning him. It's just, it's this very sad and interesting story. And that was kind of the theme of this episode a little bit, was that through all the intensity and all the craziness of this season, this was kind of the most emotional episode of them all in so, so many ways for so, so many characters. So Happy gets that information and Nick goes off to find Haley. And then we, again, see the weird interactions between Haley and Very Bad Santa. And it's just creepy. If there's ever been a just creepy, uncomfortable, nasty villain in a TV show or even a movie for that matter, Very Bad Santa by Joseph D. Reitman, I mean, I think takes the cake. No pun intended. Well, maybe a little bit. This guy was just so demented and creepy. And I guess they try to make you feel sorry for him towards the end. Maybe I did a smidge, but not for very long. You kind of come to your sense and go, wait a minute, this guy's a piece of garbage. No, no. No, you're not going to feel sorry for him. But we'll get to the ending here in a second. Because, you know, and then you've got Amanda Hansen and her struggle with Mr. Bug, and that was another, that was the only thing about the the finale that kind of made me upset was that we don't really get a whole conclusion about what happens with Mr. Bug. He kind of gets off scot-free. I'm hoping that that kind of is a big part of season two, what's going to happen with Mr. Bug, although based on the end credit scene, there's something else. Again, get to that in just a second. So, So Mary just tortures Mr. Blue, and then you kind of assume that she kills him, right? Or that she's going to kill him at some point. And then, again, Amanda kind of gets away from Mr. Bug, and Mary finds her later on in the episode. But let's just get to it. Let's get to the whole Nick trying to find Haley thing. And they go to this They go to this toy land, I guess is the best way that I could describe it, because that's how Very Bad Santa described it. And it's just these creepy guys that almost look like, if you think of Dolatrons, from Miss for, for Professor Pig in Batman, very very similar to that. Like like people that have been lobotomized to be children for the rest of their lives, kind of thing. And very bad. Santa says these are my friends, and that's where it really gets creepy because you have these, you know, like one one guy's bouncing a ball, and then you've got all these old fashioned, almost like a circus type atmosphere. And it was just really really weird. And then Nick gets trapped. The whole bear trap thing. That just man. That was heavy. That, that I mean, I was cringing when I was watching him try to get out of that. So basically, Very Bad Santa wants to do the same thing to Haley, make her a kid forever. And Happy actually comes to the rescue. And that was really, really cool, seeing Happy fight for Haley like that. And seeing a little bit more edgy Happy in this episode, I thought was really interesting. And Pat Oswald 
an amazing job all season. No exception in this episode. Did a great job. And then you see Nick almost like fueling up, like hulking up almost. Wrestling reference, if you don't know what that is for Hulk Hogan. Hulking up, and he's going to go save Haley, even though, let's face it, he got his ass handed to him when he fought really bad, very bad Santa the first time around. So that that did not go well at all. But you knew the epic confrontation was going to happen at some point. At this point, you know, Mary's still trying to connect the dots with Amanda, and they're trying to find out where Haley is as well. They eventually end up getting there, albeit a little bit too late. The battle between very bad Santa and Nick, very, very short, but very, very impactful and then you you find a, kind of find out the very bad Santa said, you know, he didn't want to grow up. They forced him to grow up when his dad left. And that's when you almost kind of feel sorry for him for a split second. And then you realize, oh, he wants her to commit suicide with him and jump off the building. No, 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 that's not going to happen. So Nick ends up having another heart attack. And you think that this is it for him, right? And then Haley to the rescue with the pills and Happy kind of distracts him. And all of the imaginary friends fighting very bad Santa. I thought that was hilarious. I know it probably wasn't meant to be super funny, but it was for me. And then you see Nick get the kill shot. He And then there's that emotional moment where Haley calls Nick daddy for the first time because Nick has no idea what to say. And I super choked up. And I was not expecting that from this show. I didn't expect to get choked up. And then I get choked up again when he brings her down to, to, his, to her mom and his wife. And he said, and the, what a great callback. When he says the whole thing about, you know, the extra stocking on the mantle, you were right. A call back to an earlier episode. I started tearing up again. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? What is the, This is happy. This isn't supposed to happen. This show's supposed, supposed to be intense and weird and fun. And I'm over here choking up. And then you see Nick fall down. You think he's dead. Of course, if you read the comics, you know he wasn't dead. But still, it just felt like that was the end for him, right? And then, you know, it's the fade to black thing. And then you see Mary there and you find out that Nick's not dead and she tells him to lay low. You know, he's not gonna. And another time, and I get choked up a third time. This was kind of getting ridiculous. I didn't realize that I was going to need a box of tissues for crying my eyes out while watching this episode. But you see Haley and Happy interacting and you see Happy start to fade away because she's growing up and she doesn't need him anymore kind of thing. And she was very, very, I mean, she, Mary, I mean, excuse me, Haley was so strong throughout this entire endeavor. I mean, if I was a kid and this happened to me, I'd be going berserk. I probably wouldn't have even survived. But this kid was so resilient, so happy fades away. And you think that, okay, now happy is gone forever. Well, not going to change the name of the show. Fast forward and you find out that Nick is going to give it a go for the whole family life thing. All they're doing is going out to a movie. Nick's freaking out and happy appears. And you find out that happy and Nick are going to be partners once again and that's who needs him the most. It's Nick, not Haley anymore. So I guess Happy's going to kind of be the voice in Nick's ear while he's trying to be a dad. So that's kind of the gist of it. I just loved the whole thing. And before I get to what my thoughts were on the entire season, the end credit scene, let's talk about it. When you've got Mr. Blue, he's in prison. He didn't die. He survived. But he has a visitor. That's right. Mikey Scaramucci pays him a visit And we know that Mikey is not Mikey anymore. But we see that body get transferred into Mr. Blue. So now whatever Mikey was, now Mr. Blue is that demon or whatever it is. So I think that's going to be the major part of season two. And again, if you haven't read the comics, I won't spoil that for you going ahead. And and they have taken liberties from the comics here. So it's not exactly 
what's going to happen. But again, I won't spoil anything for you as far as where things might be going for season two. But I've just got to say that this show from start to finish has not only been a must watch every week and has not only brought something unique to the table every week. If you're a comic book fan, I think you really have to be a comic book fan to appreciate just how brilliant this show really is. You cannot be a comic book fan and love this show. I'm not saying that you have to be one to love the show. What I'm saying is, is that if you're a true comic book fan, you probably love this a little bit more than the general audience because this is the first show I think I've ever watched based on a comic book that just had a comic book feel. And I mean that as the biggest possible compliment I can give for a show like this because there were... eh, I mean, there were movements in the show. There was stop. There was points where the action just stopped, and it was a freeze frame where it just felt like you were in a comic. The blood splatters, the just the timing of certain things, just felt so comic book. It just made me smile from ear to ear on the inside and on the outside. I just loved this so much, and I'm not sure there was a more brilliant performance on a show than Christopher Maloney as Nick Sachs. Honestly, I mean, there were so many brilliant performances in this show, but Christopher Maloney just took it so much to another level, not just for breaking the record for most times watching a man urinate on television in the open public, not just for that, but because, I mean, to bring a character like this to life in the way that he did in a crazy way, it's almost like this was the role he was born to play, and that might be the most demented compliment that I've ever given someone. But top to bottom, so many great performances in this show. I've got to give this 10 flying purple horses out of 10. Happy, one of my favorite shows of the season so far. And, and it's going to take a lot to top happy. I know, I know it's so different. It's hard to compare to anything else. But this is something I'm legitimately going to miss until it comes back, and I can't wait to see where everything's going to go and which characters are going to come back and which characters are going to be brought to us for the first time in Season 2. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Happy Season 1 finale. Up next, some nerd news to get to and some pretty controversial stuff as well on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Kent, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Think big or think small, there's no need to choose because it's time for nerd news. Totally didn't mean for that to rhyme, it just sort of worked out. So a little bit of trailer talk to start things out. How about the trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp? And is it wrong that my favorite part of this entire trailer was when Hank Pym shrinks down the building and carries it out like a suitcase? You know, he pulls the little lever up and sort of wheels it out because they're on the run now kind of thing. My favorite part of the whole trailer. I, I understand that there were some good parts and some very funny parts. Just saying, my favorite part of the entire trailer. And now this this movie is something I definitely look forward to because I think Evangeline Lilly is the Wasp is something that if you saw Ant-Man and loved it, you had to have immediately and were kind of mad that you had to wait for for this movie. And they actually kind of make a funny little reference to her not being in Civil War. And she says at one point, I think it was, hey, if, you, if I'd have been there, you wouldn't have gotten caught. Or nothing bad would have happened, something like that. So I, I thought that that was a clever little barb and her not being in that movie. But, I mean, looking forward to this, I mean, you see that she's the badass of the group. Let's just let's just call it as it is. She is the one that is going to be kind of leading the team, if you want to call them a team at this point. And I guess you would. It just seems like she's going to be the one 
that is going to be the better of the two. And I'm sure that they're both going to be awesome. But at the same time, she looks like, at least based on this trailer alone, that she's the one that's kind of taking control of the operation. And, and you know that, that, that Scott's been through plenty, so he's not a rookie in this either. But at the same time, it looks like the Wasp and Hope Van Dyne is going to be taking a major, major front role in this. And, of course, you see a lot of shrinking. You see a lot of the, the giant man stuff as well. You even see a giant Hello Kitty Pez dispenser flying through the air at one point, which, again, I thought was really funny. But what we don't really get a clear direction on in this trailer is the villain. You see the villain for like a hot second and some information's kind of come out uh, between then and now that the villain is going to be ghost. Who's going to be played in the movie by Hannah John Kamen. Now I know what you're saying. If you know who ghost is more of an Iron Man villain in the comics and it was a male. Well, it's going to be a female in Ant-Man and the Wasp. That's what ghost is going to be. And ghost is always kind of taking sort of a, uh, sabotaging companies and, and corporations kind of thing. So I would think that that's probably the target's going to be Hank Pym here and his company and taking him down for whatever reason. Again, since this is more of an Iron Man villain, uh, the angle might not be really known to us until we actually see the movie or they blow it in, a tr- in another trailer because that's kind of what we do now, right? We can never save anything for the actual movie anymore. We have to blow things in trailers before we even get there. So, I mean, I don't know. We, we also don't really get to see um, Michelle Pfeiffer as Janet Van Dyne in this movie, in this uh, trailer either. So I think that'll be interesting to see if they wait for that as well. But all in all, I mean, it looks like, looks like there's going to be some good funny moments in there. The action moments, like watching her run across the knives that are thrown uh, is, is a very interesting and cool moment. And I don't expect a whole lot different from the first movie, be honest. I mean, I, I am excited for this because I really enjoyed Ant-Man. But I don't expect anything too, too different. And again, but this time it doesn't seem like we're dealing with a shrinking and and, uh, and beginning, I guess is the best word that I can think of, villain. And there's a whole lot unknown about Ghost. But, you know, Marvel's villain problem is well documented. Will Ghost be enough to kind of carry it? Or are we going to have another villain that kind of sneaks in there? But it seems like... Ghost is the most prominent one we know of so far. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Not nearly as much as Black Panther. I think this is kind of a weird time to release this trailer because the Black Panther hype is real right now. So I don't know why you would do that. But, I mean, again, it's something to look forward to. I'm sure that this is a trailer that will be attached to the Black Panther movie anyway once you go see it. So maybe it makes sense in that regard, but I I don't know. It just seems like a weird time to do it during all the Black Panther hype. Speaking of which, by the way, a group of angry DC film fans is actually trying to ruin the Rotten Tomatoes score for Black Panther. Now, before I go off on this, let me tell you what's going on. A Facebook group, I'm not going to give you their name because I'm not going to give them the publicity for it, is actually aiming to give Black Panther a a bad Rotten Tomatoes score for, and I'm quoting here, an article from Screen Rant. Paying off the critics that hurt DC Comics on film. They're saying that Disney pays off critics to give DC movies bad Rotten Tomatoes scores. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened, so this isn't breaking new ground. So before I get to that, Star Wars fans tried this already with The Force Awakens to preserve the universe, and it was ridiculous. Okay, first of all, grow up, okay? Anybody that's doing this or thinks that this is a good idea, I'm sorry, grow up. 
This is ridiculous. You do not need to try and take down another movie of any kind, whether it be Marvel or whatever it is. This this will, first of all, not give you the desired result. This mo- This movie is going to make a ton of money, no matter what the Rotten Tomatoes score is. And if you look at DC movies, that's true, because Batman vs. Superman, terrible Rotten Tomatoes score, made a ton of money. Justice League, not as not as bad as Batman vs. Superman's Rotten Tomatoes score, but still not a good one, still made money. Not as much as it should have, but it did. Suicide Squad, same thing, made a ton of money. And I loved Suicide Squad, by the way, so don't, don't kill me for that. But this is not going to do anything. So why do this? Well, this is one of the most childish things I think I've ever heard of. And you know what what you're actually doing? This small group of morons, you know what they're actually doing? They're making anybody who is a DC fan or a DC Films fan look like idiots. That's exactly what you're doing. What you're doing is you're actually putting a mark on the brand of DC that does not need to be there because nobody from DC is going to support you in this. As a, I consider myself kind of a DC purist. I love DC, grew up on DC, but I love Marvel too. So I think that this is ridiculous and I don't want to see my DC fandom be dragged through the mud by a group of morons who aren't mature enough to just let certain movies succeed and be good movies. So there's my rant on that. Here's another thing I'd like to rant on just a little bit, okay? Stop letting a Rotten Tomatoes score be the be-all and end-all of why you want to see a movie. Are you kidding me? Does it look interesting to you or doesn't it? That should be your main reason for wanting to go see a movie. There's a thousand trailers for you to see. Did you like what you saw in the trailer or didn't you? Do you like the actors and actresses that are in the movie or don't you? Does the story look good to you or doesn't it? Is this a book you liked and you want to see how the movie turns out or isn't it? Rotten Tomatoes should mean absolutely nothing as to whether or not you want to go see a movie. I understand maybe you want to get other people's perspective. You have friends. You also have Twitter. You don't need Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm sorry if this makes Rotten Tomatoes upset. If they're hearing this and saying, hey, why are you doing this? We're trying to make some money over here. I don't care. Okay? This should not be the be-all and end-all if, if you want to see a movie or not. It's just, it just doesn't make sense. It's just one more thing that you can use to make an excuse as to whether or not you want to go see a movie, and it's absolutely unnecessary. Base it on your own opinion, whether you want to go see this movie or not. And I understand it's expensive to see movies now. You don't want to take a chance at seeing a crappy movie, so maybe you want a little bit more information. So if you think that Rotten Tomatoes is the gospel... I am not I'm not going to judge you for it. I really really won't. I know it sounds like I am, but I won't. If that's what you want to use, that's fine. I just think it's ridiculous if you're using that as the sole reason as to whether or not you're going to go see a movie. So a Rotten Tomato score for me doesn't mean a thing. Doesn't matter to me if it's a bad score. I'm going to go see the movie if I want to go see it. If it ends up being bad, you know what? That's part of going to movies, the not knowing if it's going to be good or bad. And you know what? For what's bad for one person might not be bad for you. A thousand people could hate a movie, but it just might be for you for whatever reason. So base things on what you like and what you don't like, and we'll just leave it at that. Well, not well, not at that, because there are more stories that we need to talk about, like the fact that Valiant Entertainment was just sold, according to Valiant themselves. Filmmaker and DMG Entertainment founder David Mintz has actually purchased the entire catalog of Valiant characters, which is about 2,800 characters, 
by the way, the largest catalog of characters outside of DC and Marvel. Now, Mintz is no stranger to superhero movies, being involved in Iron Man movies in the past. He's made a ton of money. And at this point, Valiant essentially gets their own studio for their movies and TV projects. Think about that for a second. So they kind of have their own Marvel studios now for their Valiant movies. Now, it's kind of, there's no real airtight information as to how this affects the projects that are already in development like Bloodshot and and Harbinger and the Quantum and Woody TV series and other things. There's been other, like Shadow Man's been optioned for movies and stuff like that. So there's been no clear-cut answer as to exactly what happens with the stuff that's already in, that's already Actually, there's nothing really in production. There have been casting rumors. Nothing set in stone, it doesn't seem like. So maybe this is the maybe this is the DMG Entertainment coming in and being that guiding force for the start of the Valiant Cinematic Universe. And first of all, whether this works, partnership works out or not, bravo to Valiant for before but for not rushing into anything and just trying to take their time to make sure they get it right the first time. Because it, it was would have been very easy, especially when you've got a name like Eric Heiser attached, would have been very easy for them to rush to production on Bloodshot or Harbinger and just try and get these movies out while superhero movies are still the hottest thing in Hollywood right now. It would have been so easy to do that. Same thing with Quantum and Woody. It would have been so easy to just rush it out there to make sure... You get it in there before any perceived bubble may burst. But you know what? Take your time. Believe in the characters that you have because there is a laundry list of great characters in the Valiant universe. And it continues to grow, by the way, because they know how to create new characters as well. So they're taking their time. They believe in their product. And it and see, that's the kind of thing that makes me believe in their product. If you're willing to wait and not rush this to production because you really think you've got a bunch of winners on your hands, it makes me go, you know what? I like that kind of confidence. I like that you're going to stick your neck out there and think what you have is great. And that pumps me up even more because that tells me they'll do the same thing with casting. They'll do the same thing with editing. Every process of them putting their th- putting their characters from page to screen is going to be examined at almost a painstaking level, I'm sure, and then it will be brought forth to the public, and the public will either love it or not. I just like the fact that there seems to be maximum effort here, and I expected nothing less from Valiant. And I'm sure the comics will continue to be just as good. I don't see Valiant making the mistake of of just completely ignoring their comics and their publishing line to focus on movies and TV. So bravo for them for doing something that, at least on the surface right now, before we even know anything or have seen anything about it, seems like it's a really good step in the right direction. And finally, we have yet another live-action show that's going to be coming to the DC streaming channel, which hopefully we get some details about at some point. But here it is. It's Metropolis. That's going to be the name of it. It's actually going to focus on Lois Lane and Lex Luthor before Superman becomes a hero. And it's already got a 13-episode order. Looks like it's gonna they're at least going to shoot for 2019 for a release date. So basically, this is kind of being billed as Gotham, but for Metropolis. It's going to focus on the iconic city before its hero has arrived. Now, here's the only thing that worries me about this. While Lois Lane 
you could do a show just about Lois Lane and I'd probably be fine because if, if a character can carry a show, it's her. And Lex Luthor being involved, I don't hate that either. But here's the deal. The difference between that and Gotham is is has nothing to do with Batman whatsoever and everything to do with the rogues gallery that follows. Look at how many characters Gotham can choose from in the rogues gallery for Batman to explore all of these different villains and all of these different interactions. And Gotham is a much more brutal city, by the way, than Metropolis. I think that that, it, that kind of goes without saying. And yeah, sure, you could take a different tenor with this show. It could certainly be a little bit lighter than Gotham or a lot bit lighter than Gotham and take a different approach. But then it's the whole what makes this show interesting other than we love Lois Lane. Other than, well, maybe how did Lex Luthor become as evil as he was? And then you've got the whole Smallville thing. Now, I know that Clark Kent was involved in Smallville, okay? So so I, I get that. But at the same time, We've kind of done a Superman prequel. And I don't even see Krypton as a Superman prequel anymore, really. And I'm super looking forward to Krypton in March, by the way. But I, I just don't see that as a Superman sequel, prequel anymore. So the only thing I have to go on is Smallville and the fact that we have done a Superman prequel already. We've already had a younger Lex Luthor. We've already had a lot of these younger characters. So... Where do we go with this? What makes this interesting? What makes me want to watch this? And again, this is something we know zero about right now. All it is is an idea. All it is is something that is going to be happening in 2019. We have no trailers, no casting, no nothing. Now, remember when we first found out about Krypton, they were talking about, you know, the whole Game of Thrones angle, the House of El versus the House of Zod kind of thing. And then they turn that idea completely on its ear and there's time travel and Adam Strange is involved and they're trying to kill Superman's grandfather to keep Superman from ever being born. And and this goes between present day and, and past Krypton. And I, that thing completely changed between idea and inception. And I kind of think that Metropolis will end up having that same kind of progression. So without really knowing anything about this, I mean, sure, this is something that I wouldn't mind checking out, and putting the spotlight on Lois Lane is never a bad idea, but how long, and this is the argument for Gotham, and I'm sorry, I've got to use it here, how long can you let this go before eventually Superman has to be part of it, and then can you make this a transition into just being a Superman show? And then the argument is inevitably going to be, come on, say it with me, is this a part of the Arrowverse? That is the question that every fan is going to ask because every time there's a new DC show, that's what gets asked. So be prepared for those questions, DC, because that's the first one that you're going to get. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. And speaking of DC, up next, we're going to shine the spotlight on Warner Brothers Animation. The cast of Gotham by Gaslight joins me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Davide Bazooz from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. DC and Warner Brothers Animation getting ready to release yet another amazing animated movie, Gotham by Gaslight. And when I was in Washington, D.C. for DC and DC 2018, I got a chance to talk to the screenwriter and the cast of the movie. So 
Up first, it's somebody that's no stranger to this show. It's screenwriter Jim Krieg, and he was asked what his inspiration was behind wanting to do this project and his motivation as well. I've always been a Sherlock Holmes fan. My my dad uh, raised me reading these Sherlock Holmes stories, and and I've read them to my kids. And um, um, and Batman is sort of like the literary descendant of Sherlock Holmes in a way, and. Uh, so, I think there was something about this that really called out to me, and it, we've all read that. Um, we've all read that graphic novel, and I think what's what's really what draws you in about it is that that look. You know, you really feel, that mood and that tone and that feeling. Really, you can step into the into that world, and uh, it's but it's very short, and this felt like a great opportunity to expand all the ideas that uh, that Brian and Mike explored in that book, and it's one that people always ask for, and so I just uh, it fell into my lap. It was like a real a real plum, you know. So it was, it was a, yes, it was, it's a dream come true, really. When I talked to Jim at San Diego Comic-Con, he said something very interesting to me then, and I wanted to talk to him again about it now that he's doing Gotham by Gaslight. It's funny, when I talked to you in San Diego, you were talking about how you do a lot of comedy, and you say, and you actually said to me, you said, I don't want anybody to think I can't do serious stuff, and this is about as serious as it gets, so what's it like for you to kind of step out and do something a little bit different for you? There's a lot of smug satisfaction in it. I, I really do enjoy comedy, but I think that there's an element of comedy that's just being clever and being witty, and I think that that everybody in this in this piece has a point of view and, and says sharp things in their voice, and so that's a, a kind of a kid cousin to comedy, which I hope is good dialogue. You'll have to tell me when you eviscerate it in the in your columns after you see it. Uh, but um, uh, I did do one. I, I adapted Flashpoint before, and that one is super unfunny. <laughs> you know, it's it. I, I, I read it and and I had to think, can I do this? And then I thought, well, it's it's Grand Guignol. It's it's an absurd amount of blood and and death and destruction, and which is kind of another. Um, I wouldn't know that cousin of comedy. It's but, it's uh, taking an idea and pushing it all the way. And, and I think this is kind of another version of that. Next up was the amazing Yuri Lowenthal who plays Harvey Dent. And I wanted to talk to him about taking the character outside of its context. This is kind of an world story. It's kind of an out in continuity thing. You did that with Justice League, Gods and Monsters too. So what's yeah. it like to take a character like Harvey Dent and take him out of his normal context? A bit? I I love it. I, uh, I'm i a big fan of Elseworld stuff. As a matter of fact, I keep waiting for them to do the Doom that came to Gotham because I'm a big Lovecraft fan as well. It was I, I was already familiar with the source material. Um, and I, I love being able because you get to break some rules, you get to anger some fans, you know, and you get to you get to mess around a little bit and see where you can play within the you know within all the parameters and the context, but also break out a little bit here and there just to you know obviously in line with the characters what they what they would normally do, but um, but it was fun. This uh, and this is this is not a this is this is not nice guy Harvey Dent. So it was it's always fun because. I am a goody two-shoes in real life to, to play. That's why I love playing villains, because it, I, I get to do stuff that, that I wouldn't normally get to do. In case you didn't know just how big of a Batman fan Yuri Lowenthal is, listen to this story he told about one of his recording sessions. It's great. And then once, when, we, when they were doing uh, Dark Knight Returns, I got to play a son of a Batman in there. And I, I brought in on, my, uh, on the day that I came to record... I said Andrea Romano, who was you know doing the, the directing, and uh, Bruce Tim was there, and I said, guys, I want to I want to 
I'm going to show you in one photo why Andrea Romano is, is brilliant at what she does and why I'm so happy to be here today. And I showed him a picture from me in high school when all my friends went to see the Tim Burton Batman. Um, but we had all just read Dark Knight and we didn't know it was up. So we all showed up at the theater in like trench coats with bats painted on our faces, <laughs> plastic shotguns. Like it was another world, you know, back then. Um, but that's, that's why I love my job. If you've listened to this show at all, you know I'm a big fan of noir. So I had to ask Gary Lowenthal what it was like to work in the noir setting of the movie. So this is animation, so it might be a little bit different, but what's it like working in like the noir style and doing it that way? I, you know, I'm a huge fan of noir and alternate Victorian timeline stuff. And and while I find they're, they're, they're both very, very different, this, you can go, uh, my wife and I did an, an alternate Victorian uh, short called uh, Topsy McGee versus the Sky Pirates. You can watch it on YouTube. I love that era stuff. I love steampunk stuff. And I'm a huge fan of noir um, and 1940s stuff. I'm working on a project to, you know, to produce in that vein. I love those movies. Um, I love that style. Uh, and I... I relish, I mean, that's one of the reasons I started doing this, is so I could play at those things that I loved. So I'll always, I'll, you know, both, you know, two fists, I'll, I'll go in with that. Yeah. It's always great to spend time with the amazing producer and creator extraordinaire Bruce Tim, and I asked him about doing so many Batman stories, and maybe with Gotham by Gaslight, it was time to do something a little different. Is this one of those instances where you do so many Batman stories that you sit down and you go, maybe it's time to do something different with the character? Um, th that certainly played into it a little bit. I mean, that's definitely one of the appeals for the movie for me is... Um, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with doing a modern-day Batman movie in modern-day Gotham City, but I've done a lot of them, you know, and I've done a lot of TV shows with it, with that uh, that setting and with that character. So, um, getting to do a period piece, specifically in this time period, you know, the late Victorian era, um, because I'm, I'm like a big horror movie fan, you know, the Universal horror movies and Hammer movies and um, things like Sweeney Todd and Jack the Ripper and you know Sherlock Holmes. It's all kind of you know stuff that I love. So it was just kind of fun to be able to, to to go to a different place and build a different world and. Batman kind of fits into that world like really easily as well. So I mean, the comic is so it's so it was. I remember when the comic first came out. I remember thinking it's such a stupidly obvious idea. I'm surprised nobody's ever thought of it before because um, it, it just works like a charm. So um, so yeah, it's just uh, it, it was a, a real fun project. It was one that I was looking forward to doing for a long time. Well, in that same vein, what's it like pitting the world's greatest detective up against maybe one of the greatest murder <laughs> mysteries of all time? For Unfortunately, we didn't have to stick to the actual details of the Jack the Ripper murders. I mean, rip, hardcore ripperologists are going to like... They're, they're <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody was going to be I mad mean, one way I or mean, the other. But yeah. if, if Star Wars fans thought that Last Jedi was, was divisive, oh, ripperologists are going to have a field day with this. Um, <laughs> so, um, so having Batman solve the Jack the Ripper crime is a little bit easier than... I mean, yeah. I mean, the solution to the murder is not, oh yeah, it's, it's the Queen's nephew and... Rosicrucians and all those guys in on it. It's, it's nothing like that, but um, but so yeah. But it, it definitely did give us a chance to have Batman be a little bit more of the, the detective. We don't often do that in the movies. You know, we have a tendency to kind of forget that he's a detective. So actually getting to see him like you know put two and two together and do some forensics and stuff is actually kind of fun. Um, and uh, again, because of the time period, we couldn't actually resist kind of throwing in a couple little nods to Sherlock Holmes as well. When you sit down with Bruce Tim, the conversation ultimately turns to, okay, which books would you like to adapt into animated movies next? So you know the Batman story I was going to bring up. I would love to see Hush done. I don't know if that's on the radar at all, but I think that would be a good one. 
That would be a good one. <laughs> he says cryptically. Does that mean anything? Does it not? I'll let you guys be the judge. But speaking of this particular movie, Gotham by Gaslight, it being rated R, Bruce Tim says those expecting one kind of rated R might be disappointed. Even though it's R-rated, I will say this. Anybody going there expecting it to be a, a really super gory slash fest, is they're going to be disappointed. It's not. I mean, it's um, it's dark. There's, there's a couple murders in it that one of them in particular is pretty horrible to look at and to watch. But it's not... Um, it's not like torture porn. It's not like like a Saw movie or you know Dario Argento movie. So, but it's it's definitely you know the R rating I think is appropriate to it. But. Taking advantage of the amazing amount of time that we actually have with Bruce Tim at DC and DC 2018, I had to ask him about not just Batman stories but the Bat Family as well in DC animation. Is there a member of the Bat Family that you think okay this character deserves their own story? I'd really like to do something with this specific character. Um. Yes, I mean, I I do wish that we would kind of uh, get a little bit more into the deep bench of the Batman characters, and we tend to use Batman and Robin and Nightwing a lot. Um, I really like Batgirl character a lot. I like I like the Bat um, Batwoman character a lot. Um, I know she's been in in a couple of the movies that, that my um, my friend James Tucker has has directed, but I haven't done anything with her yet. But um, but I like those characters a lot. I, I think it'd be cool to do something with them. It was so cool to get a chance to talk to Scott Patterson, who's playing Commissioner Gordon in Gotham by Gaslight, or should we call him something else? I'll ask him. So should we call you Commissioner Gordon or Inspector Gordon? Because this is a little bit different, right? Uh, you can call me uh, it's both. <laughs> my middle name is Gordon. That's my mother's maiden name. There you so, go. So I'll respond nice. to a Gordon. So what's it like playing this version of Gordon then? Well, I've never played any other version, so I don't have anything to compare it to. But um, it was fun. It was interesting. It was, you know, voiceover is challenging in that you don't have other actors to play against. Um, I got the role the day before, so I, I didn't have time to do any real research or read the book that this is based off of. Um, so I was relying completely on instinct and their guidance, which I think can be helpful in certain situations. I think it, I, I think it was in this situation. I think if you overthink something and overprepare something, it can really come out as kind of... Uh, it never really gets out of the starting gate because you're still sort of in that mode, that research mode. I think it all worked out beautifully. It was fun. Is that something that you felt entering this comic book realm? Because I'm sure you've heard from so many other people, oh, comic book fans can be really picky. Is that something that you thought about and was not doing that research kind of freeing in a way, you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. As I stated, um, at this point in my career, I have enough confidence in my ability to sort of adjust on the fly. Um, nervousness doesn't enter into it anymore. It's just really... Is this going to bore me, or will this will this interest me? You know, I've done pretty well, and now I can kind of sit back and pick and choose. And I said, well, that that seems interesting, and I didn't really give it a, a heck of a lot of thought. It was just like I've never done that before, and it's Batman. That's kind of you know that appealed to the little kid in me. You know, I thought that's pretty cool. Um, and to be a part of it, I just thought, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. So after I was done asking a few questions, somebody else asked why it was so fun to work on this project, and if you want insight on how he played this character, he gives it to you here. Listen to this. The real enjoyment of it was that they allowed this sort of theatricality in the performance. 
which is fun because if you work in film and television, it's it's very small, right? You work, and especially in film, you work really small. Hopefully, you don't say too much, but you emote and you act, and that's interesting, right? Television, it's all about this, you know, talking to. So you you know you go crazy talking all the time on TV. So. Um, with it, and then there's that stage discipline where it's a bigger, it's it's a bigger voice, it's a, it's bigger movements, and it's all this bravura. So we, or I was given the opportunity to do that with this character, because I was giving it my sort of film interpretation and what I thought they wanted, and they're like, oh no, <laughs> we we can we can go much bigger. Just think of it like you know. Think of it like you're doing Shakespeare or something. I'm yeah. like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, so that was very freeing. And it was f made it really fun. Made for a really fun day. Because you're just, you know, you're... You know, you're, you're committing. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like full on. It's like, this isn't scrimmage. This is the real thing, man. It's like full pads, and you're going. So it was, it was fun. After that, Scott started talking about bringing the best out in your performance, talking about director. So I asked him, is it better to work with somebody you know can bring out the best in you, or is it fun to work with someone different sometimes? Does that make you then want to work with certain people more because you know, okay, they're going to bring out the best in me, or is there something nice about walking in and saying, I've never worked with this person before? Or let's see how this goes. Right, that's interesting. That's interesting. And hopefully it goes well. Because you're more open to it. Um, yeah, I mean, there have been times... And, and look, you can be having a great time with a director and they're leading you down the wrong path and you don't know it. True. True. And then you see what you did and you're like, oh, God. And then there have been times when you're working with a director and you really are opposing something or an interpretation you said no I want to do it this way and then you see it and you go oh god <laughs> so then Scott started talking about why Batman is such an interesting character and the different aspects of the character so I wanted to ask him about the interactions between Batman and Gordon and what he thinks about that. I think there's a fascination in his interactions with Gordon and how that relationship is then as well because you've got the cop over here and the vigilante over here and how that's kind of tolerated then. I think that's the distinction in this iteration is that he's dealing with that that vigilante aspect of it. Um, I'm very limited in terms of what I can say. Right. But, so I'll say that. Um, yeah, and that's that's all I can really say. So we went and saved the bat for last. That's right, Bruce Greenwood was up next, and this isn't his first time as Batman, and I wanted to ask him about the difference between the two. So what happens when you go from Young Justice Batman to now this Gotham by Gaslight Batman? How's the difference there? Well, I think the Young Justice um, Batman, somehow I dropped into a, a lower a much lower register and I think that just kind of happened on the day when I went in the first time when we were searching for the voice you know and so I and that kind of became a that's a that became the default timber for for that Batman and it might be you know for that show it might actually be a little heavy but right. but I, I, I don't know, you know. I don't know. Bruce then started talking about how different fans reacted to him playing Batman and maybe liking Kevin Conroy more. So I asked him about that 
and what do you have to do to get Batman right, essentially? You talked about the fans before. When you do Batman, is it more of a, okay, I want to make sure I stick to the source material more, or is it I need to make sure I sound the fans the way the fans want me to sound? Which, which how, can you, how can you ever sound the way the fans want you to sound? Right, and that's, that's kind you know, of the point, yeah. You know, because you, you know, brought up Kevin. John and Doe fan where, comes up, and and then Jane Doe comes up, and they're both saying, well, you know, they would have liked something. Right. They're both looking for something different, so you can't. No, you really try and try and please the director and Bruce mm-hmm. and Gary, and 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 I let them guide me more than anything. Someone then asked Bruce if he wears a cape and a cowl when he does the voice of Batman in the booth, but this is not the answer that we were expecting. No, you know, I usually I end up actually half the time taking my shirt off because it gets really because <laughs> it gets hot you know and the shirt gets noisy and stuff and, and I just I'm, I've done that for in looping and on the ADR stage for years and years and years just go oh fuck take this shit off so you get yeah. animated yeah, yeah. That's how you break yeah. the internet right there. <laughs> right. Well done. Right. You might also know Bruce Greenwood because he was Captain Pike in the Star Trek movie, so I couldn't resist asking him what might happen if those two worlds collided. So as long as we're pulling up your IMDb, IMDb page, let's talk about Star Trek for a couple minutes. So if, yeah. if mm. Batman walks into Starfleet, how does that go? <laughs> Oh, the fur is going to fly, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if Batman walks up to Pike, mm. that's really interesting, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I guess Pike would just go take off the stupid suit. <laughs> <laughs> and then Batman would grab him by the throat and shake, <laughs> shake the It really is such a great cast for Batman Gotham by Gaslight and such a unique concept. So when I actually saw it, I just got really into it, into the time period that it was based in. These are going to be spoiler-free thoughts on Batman Gotham by Gaslight, by the way, just for a couple minutes. I got really into the to the period that they were in, and it's such a unique and different take than we're used to seeing on the Batman character, on the Commissioner Gordon character, on the Harvey Dent character. Everybody's sort of a little bit different in this. And what we haven't talked about was Jennifer Carpenter, who does a supreme job as Selena Kyle, and the fact that Tara Strong is in this, I'm not going to spoil who she is because I want you to see it when you watch the movie because you'll recognize Tara's voice immediately and plays a bigger role than you might think in this movie too, by the way. So I won't give away who her character is, but and I will say this too. I did not know the identity of the Ripper until it was revealed. And I think that was one of the cool things about this movie is that I did not know who the Ripper was until it was revealed. And, and it, you, you think you know... And there's a curveball there. It's just such an amazing reveal in this movie. And it was it was a movie that I really, really enjoyed. I was just enthralled from beginning to end. There were no low points. There was nothing that dragged at all. It was just such an enjoyable movie. So I definitely recommend Gotham by Gaslight, Batman Gotham by Gaslight, which you can get on Tuesday on Blu-ray and DVD. And it's already available on digital on demand, too, by the way. So if you want to go that route, you can do that as well. That's going to do it for episode 199 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. Thanks again to the cast and creators of Batman Gotham by Gaslight for joining me at DC and DC 2018. Also, thanks to my fellow colleagues, Sci-Fi Wire and BlurredCon and many more 
Appreciate that. And hey, we're coming up next week, episode 200, going to be a huge show. No, I'm not going to tell you who's going to be on the show just yet. You're going to have to wait a little bit longer for that. Make sure you're following on social media, facebook.com slash down and nerdy at down and nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram. There'll be some reveals there. Also, the website, never a bad place to go, down and nerdy podcast.com. But until next week, don't forget, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.